The following talk was given at the Sati Center for Buddhist Studies in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at sati.org. Uh, so uh, very briefly, just to um, recap where we were, we've been looking at the Mahaparinibbana uh, um, Sutta, the uh, story of the last days of the Buddha, and uh, in the uh, we saw that the this particular discourse is uh, largely informed or created not just by the circumstances of the Buddha's death, but also by the social and political circumstances surrounding him, namely especially the the uh, uh, expansionism of Ajata Sattu, uh, but more generally also the uh, collapse of the social and political order that obtained during most of the Buddha's life. And so we saw, we've seen how the narrative of the Mahaparinibbana Sutta um, is sort of operating on these complex levels where on the one hand, you know, the primary narrative is telling the story of the journey of the Buddha towards the place where he's going to die in full knowledge of that fact, um, also telling the personal journey of Venerable Ananda as he journeys alongside of him, as Ananda is the teller of the story after the Buddha's death, so he's inserting himself into the story, uh, while also having that broader context of the political changes but also religious changes, um, venerable, um, venerable uh, Nigantanata Putta, aka Mahavira Varimana, had also died just recently. So uh, there were changes in the religious and spiritual environment going on at the same time. Uh, and uh, so we also see the um, uh, the diverse responses of the Buddhist community to the impending news, uh, some responding with equanimity, some with distress, uh, and how that informs the uh, way that the different uh, dimensions of the Buddhist community evolved in later years, which is a theme I'll return to a bit later on. So for today, uh, we've drawn uh, quite near to the time of the Parinibbana. Uh, and last time, uh, I believe, uh, we, took, we came up as far as discussing the occasion when the Buddha got sick and Ananda had to bring him a drink and then he met Pukusa, the Mala. Um, and <clears throat> if we continue on from that narrative... Uh, the Buddha now is going to approach the uh, Sal forest at Kusinara, where he did ultimately pass away. So let me just uh, share screen. Uh, the Buddha said, let's go to the far shore of the Golden River, the Hiranyavatiya Nadia, and onto the Sal forest of the Malas at Vavatana near Kusinara. <clears throat> And I, I think I've mentioned this before, but I'll just say again in passing, when I'm when I've been doing these translations, um, like like often it's conventional not to translate names of things, which often is uh, often is the right thing to do. But frequently in Pali, names also have a meaning, uh, and that gives you something of the sense of what's going on around there. Now, in this particular case, the Golden River, Hiranyavatiya, uh, Nadia, probably uh, is called Golden presumably because there was gold in it. 
I mean, I'm assuming that's the obvious reason, which probably tells you something about the source of the economic prosperity uh, of the peoples in this region. One of the sources was the gold that washed down the rivers from the Himalayas. Um, so the Buddha is now in the land of the Malas, which we uh, discussed last week as well. So the Buddha, and that's where they went. Then the Buddha addressed Ananda, saying, Please, Ananda, set up a cot for me between the twin sal trees with my head to the north. I'm tired and will lie down. Yes, sir, replied Ananda, and did as he was asked. Then the Buddha laid down in the lion's posture on the right side, placing one foot on top of the other, mindful and aware. Now, at that time, the twin sal trees were in full blossom with flowers out of season. And as I mentioned before, I think this is one of the reasons why uh, it seems likely the Buddha's passing away was not in May, as is currently celebrated in the month of Waisak, uh, because at that time the sal trees uh, blossom. It is the season for the sal trees to blossom. Uh, so here they're blossoming out of season, which would fit with the schedule of them being in the cold season around December or January. They sprinkled and bestrewed the, blessed, the realized one's body in honor of the realized one. And the flowers of the heavenly flame tree fell from the sky, and they too sprinkled and bestrewed the real one, realized one's body in honor of the realized one. And heavenly sandalwood powder also fell from the sky, and heavenly music played in the sky, and heavenly choirs sang in the sky in honor of the realized one. Then the Buddha pointed out to Ananda what was happening, adding, that's not the full extent of how the realized one is honored, respected, revered, and esteemed. Any monk or nun or female or male or female lay follower who practices in lines with the teaching, practicing properly, living in line with the teachings, they honor, respect, revere, venerate and esteem the realized one with the highest honor. So Ananda, you should train like this. We shall practice in line with the teachings, practicing properly, living in line with the teaching. And so again, we can see this is the very typical uh, uh, attitude of the Buddha to such miraculous events. Uh, we've seen a number of such cases already, uh, and this is very prominent in suttas like Majjhima 123, the Acharya Bhutta Sutta. Uh, the Buddha wasn't uh, sort of an aggressive kind of skeptic. He wasn't sort of out to prove everybody wrong and say these things weren't true or these things were true. He just, he just, he was more like meh, whatever. And he's saying that's not really the the point. Yeah? Uh, and the, the 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 terminology or the phrasing that he uses there is quite uh, nice, nice in the sense of uh, finely judged, because uh, he says it's not etavata, not to this extent. And so he's not saying that there's anything wrong with paying homage to the Buddha with flowers and scents and all of those kinds of things, right? So. So it's tempting to translate that passage as saying, oh, that's not the real way to, to pay homage to the Buddha. But that, that's not really what the text says. The text says that's not the full extent of how to pay homage to the Buddha. Uh, but rather, the homage that the Buddha really respects is the one who's practicing in line with the teachings. And this is, this is a, a, a kind of a theme and an attitude that you find right throughout the early Buddhist texts and which has largely permeated most of the Buddhist traditions. And so there's this kind of uh, balance when it comes to these elements which we might consider to be supernatural or something like that. The Buddha, I don't think the Buddha wanted to get bogged down into discussions about the reality of these things, but it's more, well, what is the point? Like what is, what is it that, that actually 
uh, really kind of matters. Uh, so, you know, when, when I see these things, I mean, as a text scholar, uh, I mean, all I can say is what's in the text. I can say, um, uh, you know, I can, we can look at parallels and we can look at various things like that, but ultimately we can't really say uh, what was happening and whether these things were real or whether these things are not. That ultimately comes down to faith. Uh, but what is really apparent is this idea that the Buddha said, well, actually, the practice that goes beyond that is the practice of the Dhamma. Um, and I, I think it's probably just worth noting this in kind of uh, the context of current discussions around Buddhism and so on. I'll just sort of just briefly contextualize it because I'm not sure if people, uh, how much familiarity people have, but. Uh, obviously, much um, in, in most of the traditional forms of Buddhism, we find a strong emphasis on devotional practices. Uh, and this is very kind of obvious in pretty much any traditional Buddhist country. Now, in modern, one of the sort of basic theses of modernist Buddhism, so-called modernist Buddhism, uh, was that the Buddha taught a rational teaching of meditation, ethics, and so on, uh, rather than teaching purely devotional and superstitious-based practices. And this was a kind of new wave of Buddhism that started really in the 19th century uh, and dominated much of the 20th century. Now, towards the end of the 20th century, the winds shifted, certainly in terms of academic studies, and rather than trying to find a one true rational tradition, the emphasis much became much more on Buddhisms. And so pretty much any kind of article in academic circles these before quite some decades now, you can't talk about Buddhism, you have to talk about Buddhisms. And of course, acknowledging that there have always been these different kinds of Buddhisms. And it's, and it's, which is fair enough, right? There's, there's many different kinds of Buddhism. And, you know, if that's your thing, then that's your thing. That's not a problem. But the, sometimes it goes too far, I think, when people will, will tend to kind of assume that uh, if you say, oh, you know, uh, if you say place meditation as more of a priority than say devotional practice, then people will say, you know, that's that's being colonialist, right? That's being orientalist because you're dismissing practices that other people are doing. And I think it's really important to acknowledge that you find the Buddha himself doing this kind of thing all the time. I mean, this is not where the, the modernists were not just making things up, right? They weren't just inventing the idea that the Buddha talked about meditation and he talked about reason and he talked about morality and so on. All of this stuff is right there in the suttas, as has been acknowledged right throughout the Buddhist world. And again, it's not just that there are Western scholars who say this, but any knowledgeable Buddhist, Buddhist in any Asian country will essentially tell you the same thing. I've been told the same thing countless times in Thailand or Sri Lanka or Malaysia or wherever you go, that people will say, oh, here, everyone just does puja. They just do devotion, yeah, and, you know, we, we should do more meditation, right? I mean, literally <laughs> everybody will say that. So this is not just a kind of Western Orientalist thing. It's something which is based in the suttas, which is not to say, of course, that it can't be framed in a Western and Orientalist way. And sometimes it's framed in a way uh, as if uh, somehow Western uh, Buddhists and secularized Buddhists had kind of discovered meditation and were practicing the real Dhamma, whereas Asian Buddhists are not practicing real Dhamma. And, of course, that's a bit, a bit racist 
and it doesn't acknowledge the reality of the complexities of what is going on in all of these different countries because in every single Buddhist country there are all kinds of different people doing all kinds of different things and uh, so we can't really generalize uh, on that basis. So this is just a kind of a bit of a, uh, you know, like, you know, you see this same, in a way, this same tension which is being addressed by the Buddha here in this passage is still playing itself out today. And, and you know, you can see that, that somebody who's reading that passage would tend to read it through that lens through which they practice today. So somebody who has a very devotional practice to Buddhism today would tend to see, oh, the gods are coming and sprinkling flowers and so on, and they say, oh, that's so beautiful, it's so nice, and they take it very face value because it's affirming their own practice, uh, whereas somebody who's maybe into meditation will look at that and they'll think, oh, yeah, see, see, the Buddha said this devotional practice is not really where it's at, so that's really affirming my practice. So anyway, I think it's interesting that, uh, you know, those different tendencies are very much present in the early days. And in this sutta in particular, we're sort of starting to see a bit of that jockeying backwards and forth in the community to sort of people positioning themselves uh, according to the kinds of practice that they're doing. Let's proceed. All right. Um, <clears throat> now... This next, next episode is very uh, embarrassing for poor Upavana. Now, at that time, Venerable Upavana was standing in front of the Buddha, standing him, and Upavana was a, uh, a sort of a second attendant to the Buddha, if you like, a supporter of Ananda. Um, the Buddha made him move, saying, move over, mendicant, don't stand in front of me. I mean, how would you feel if the Buddha said that to you? Oh, my goodness. Ananda thought that the Venerable Upavana has been the Buddha's attendant for a long time, close to him, living in his presence. Yet in his final hour, the Buddha makes him move, saying, move over, mendicant, don't stand in front of me. What's the cause? What is the reason? And so we asked the Buddha, and the Buddha said, most of the deities from ten solar systems have gathered to see the realized one. For 12 leagues all around this sal grove, there's no spot, not even a fraction of a hair's tip. It's not crowded full of illustrious deities. And those deities are complaining. We've come such a long way to see the realized one. Only rarely do realized ones arise in the world, perfected ones, fully awakened Buddhas. And this very day in the last watch of the night, the realized one will become fully extinguished. And this illustrious mendicant is standing in front of the Buddha, blocking the view. We won't get to see the realized one in his final hour. Uh, and so Ananda says, what kind of deities are you thinking of? There are uh, Ananda deities both in the sky and on the earth who are percipient of the earth. With their hair disheveled and arms raised, they fall down like their feet were chopped off, rolling back and forth, lamenting, too soon will the Blessed One become fully extinguished, too soon the Holy One will become fully extinguished, too soon the eye in the world will vanish. But the deities who are free from desire and due, mindful and aware, thinking conditions are impermanent. How could it possibly be otherwise? Tang Pudetta Labha. So um, nice little story there. The, the the thousands of devas on the head of a skin on the head of a pin uh, thing here going on. I'm I'm going to have to say this because. Um, I'm just going to have to, so you're just going to have to put up with me. But I was 
just uh, the other day happened to be having the dana at a uh, uh, house of uh, one of the local Buddhist devotees, and the husband was a, a physicist, astro a, a cosmologist, We're having a nice little conversation about various things. And I mentioned that in the suttas, uh, when the Buddha is speaking of the devas, they have three physical differences from ordinary human beings that you might not might not imagine those three human differences as we see here number one is that their length has shrunk you see how they're very small so length has shrunk number two their mass has increased they can't hold their mass up and number three time slows down Shrinking length, increasing mass, time slowing down. These are the three principles. I can see a few people get it. These are the three principles in the special theory of relativity. As you approach the speed of light, this is what happens. I don't know. It's weird, isn't it? I think it's strange because deva basically means a being of light. So there may be... Maybe, maybe relativistic beings who are approaching the speed of light, and that's why that they are, I don't know. Anyway, <laughs> moving on. <laughs> okay, moving on. All right. Very good. <clears throat> so the Buddha, I won't read this through this whole passage, but the Buddha goes on to, um, uh, to recommend that after he's passed, that people go to see the four inspiring places, the four are somewhere Jiani to Tanani, uh, and these are the places the Buddha was born. The place we would have born, of course, in Lumbini, and um, uh, this one particularly is notable because at Lumbini there is an Ashokan pillar, and on the Ashokan pillar uh, it says Idha Bhagavan Jateti which is basically exactly the same if you see the Pali here, Idha Tathagato Jato. So the, the, um, uh, it's, it's, it's essentially a direct quote from the suttas uh, inscribed into the uh, pillar at Lumbini, and it's probably the earliest direct quote from the suttas uh, anywhere, uh, in, uh, in, anywhere in existence. Uh, so when the Buddha became awakened, of course, at Bodh Gaya, uh, where the... Wheel of Dharma was rolled forth, of course, at Sarnath, uh, on the outskirts of um, Varanasi, and where the Buddha became fully extinguished, which is, of course, where we are right now in Kusinara. So uh, if you haven't had the opportunity to go for pilgrimage to these places, it is highly recommended, very, very inspiring. And uh, if you go to those places... Um, like it's one of those things that you can't really explain rationally, but when you go to those places where the Buddha went and where he lived and so on, and then you see all of the other people on that pilgrimage and all the people of faith and devotion, it really changes you. And it's really, it's really profound and very moving uh, experience. So if you do get the chance to go on pilgrimage, I do highly recommend it. All right. Now, Let's move on to now. So these are some of the last passages that the Buddha is now speaking. So the Buddha is now at Kusinara. Uh, he's lying down between the sal tree and he is, uh, we're just coming up to the end of his life. Ananda comes along with a few slightly 
odd questions. So first thing he says is Ananda, uh, sorry, he said, sorry, Ananda says, sir, how do we proceed when it comes to females? So that's a kind of slightly odd question to ask. Now, there's been, there's no real kind of context for it. It seems to be fairly abruptly inserted. It's not found in the parallels, or at least in some of the parallels. So it seems pretty clear that it is a later insertion. There are also syntactical reasons for assuming that, which I won't go into right now. But let me just talk a little bit about what, like, like why this is here or what it means. First thing uh, is that when I'm translating uh, Matugama, uh, I translate Matugama as female rather than woman. Uh, Pali has two words for one. One is iti, which is normally in opposition to purisa. So purisa, man, iti, woman. And uh, then they have matugama. Now, matugama, it means woman, right? but it's usually used in context where it's, it's contrasted with a bhikkhu. So purisa is contrasted with an iti, a man and a woman, whereas a bhikkhu is contrasted with a matugama, as it is indeed in this particular case here. So this is why I think it's worthwhile trying to preserve that distinction by using the rendering females rather than women here. And if you think that uh, that using the word females has a slightly derogatory and slightly um, objectifying kind of sense, then that's kind of how Matugama feels also. Maybe, maybe. Anyway, um, so how do we proceed uh, when it comes to females? See, see here's the thing is that Ananda was very handsome and very much a favourite of the ladies. And uh, there are many um, episodes, some of them quite comic, of what actually happened in his various uh, adventures with various ladies who fell in love with him or the different kinds of circumstances that he got into or whatever. So we don't really have a narrative context for our, our asking this question, but there is a kind of a context in terms of Ananda's character uh, and his own uh, perhaps doubts about his practice or doubts about his sexuality. Um, but, you know, that's all kind of inference. What we actually have is the just the kind of abrupt insertion of this. Now, uh, the Buddha says, adasanang, not seeing without looking ananda. Okay. Now, this, that, that recommendation contradicts what the Buddha said elsewhere. Elsewhere, the Buddha said that you should have um, uh, uh, practice sense restraint. Sense restraint doesn't mean not looking, but it means being aware of uh, how what you're seeing uh, provokes what kinds of response inside you uh, and being mindful of that. So this is kind of a different advice than the Buddha gives normally. Let's not forget that this is advice for Ananda specifically and not meant to be general advice. But also, well, oh, sorry, that point is a little bit ambiguous, I should say. So the, the pronouns here are, are, are plural, so Ananda's using a we, but then that we is also quite commonly used in Pali in a kind of royal we sense. So it's a little bit, it's a little bit ambiguous, but I really think this is mostly talking about just Ananda. Now, one interesting detail here, and I'm just going to stop sharing this. When we look at um, the Pali Canon and look at the discourse that you have in the Pali Canon, right? Okay, first of all, obviously we're dealing with texts that are two and a half thousand years old, okay? So we can't expect 
<laughs> we, have to, we have to take that into consideration as to how it's framing itself and what it's saying. What I find is quite um, astonishing about the suttas is how rarely we find anything that's really problematic in them. Uh, not to say that you don't find anything, but, you know, if we compare with other scriptures of the same time or a similar period, you know, 500 BC, then, you know, not uncommonly those kinds of scriptures will be like not wishing to point to anyone in particular, but they'll be like, go and smite them with the sword and kill every man, woman and child and leave not a certain, leave not a single person alone, that kind of thing, which is, you know, also much more problematic, I would imagine. So in the suttas, you find, you only find a very few things like this. And it's almost like they kind of stick out because most of the things the Buddha says are so reasoned and so balanced. And so one way of looking at it is a text historical way is to look at, well, you know, maybe these things have been added later or something like that. So that's one way of looking at it. It's also possible to look at it in terms of the changing attitudes of the Buddhist community. Now, it's often said, and I think with some justification, that more sexist or more misogynist attitudes crept into the Buddhist tradition over time. Uh, and without, again, wanting to sort of delve into that too deeply, uh, then there is certainly some things you can find in the uh, Pali commentarial tradition that are outrageously misogynistic. Uh, the Asatamanta Jataka, for example, or the, or the Kunala Jataka and various things like this are among the most horrendously misogynist texts that you'll find anywhere. Um, so what their status in the Buddhist tradition is, well, I mean, the Jatakas collect hundreds of texts from pretty much everywhere. So that's true on one hand, that there is that kind of movement towards, you know, towards more sexist or more misogynistic texts. That's true. But this is always somewhat complicated and it's never monolithic because traditions represent the views and ideas of people and people, I don't know if you've ever noticed, are very weird and they have all kinds of different views and ideas. And having lived in a monastery, I can tell you that you do not, there's not a single monastery in the world where there is one monk who sits next to another monk and they agree about everything. This does not happen. Everybody disagrees about everything all the time. So a tradition is anything but a monolithic thing. Now, in this particular case, it's quite interesting because of what the commentary says. So the sutta just says, what should we do about women? Don't look at them. Okay, what does the commentary says? The commentary says oh, what this really means is that if a monk is in his hut and a woman comes up to the door of the hut and is standing there trying to entice the monk, then you shouldn't look at her. It's interesting, isn't it? So the commentary is quite concerned to restrict that whole thing down to one very specific case where it's clearly an appropriate response. And in that particular case, you know, it's a reasonable kind of piece of advice. And uh, so in that instance, and this is not alone, but this is one instance where you can see the commentary is, is I think, giving a more kind of limited or more rational uh, response to what seems to be uh, quite a broad statement in the original text. So um, let's continue to see what else happens in this passage. Okay, so how should we proceed when it comes to females don't look and under? Fine. But when looking, how to proceed? 
Okay, uh, this cracks me up because Ananda like immediately says to the Buddha, "Well, I'm not going to do that, right? Okay, you <laughs> tell me, tell me don't look. But okay, fine. But obviously we're going to look. So then what do we do? Well, how do you proceed then? Well, without chatting, right? And alapo. Okay, but when we are chatting, how do we proceed? Well, be mindful, Ananda. So you know, Ananda is um, <laughs> not shy about letting the Buddha know that he has zero intention in actually keeping any of these recommendations. Um, that last one, uh, when chatting how to proceed to be mindful, also uh, is glossed uh, quite in quite an interesting way by the commentary, uh, which refers to a sutta in the Anguttara and Nikaya. Now, in that sutta in the Anguttara and Nikaya, um, uh, uh, someone is asked, is it the Buddha? Uh, let me see. Uh, that's right. Uh, so uh, someone is asked when... How the monks, um, how the monks manage to manage their sexuality without being overwhelmed by desire, and the first response that the Buddha gives is to say that they look at women who are their own age as their sisters, they look at women who are older than them as their mothers, and they look at women who are younger than them as their daughters, and uh, that's that's how they proceed mindfully. Uh, and so this is that's the text which is referred to by the commentary here. So, uh, again, you know, I think this is a very interesting passage. I do think that it's uh, arbitrarily inserted. It probably is a late passage. But I think it, 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 um, it represents a kind of interesting, uh, how do I say this, like an interesting response by the community to kind of evolving questions of monastics in their relation to women. Uh, so, yeah, anyway. Um, uh, so the next one, a bit more straightforward. Uh, how do we proceed when it comes to the realized one's corpse? So the Buddha said, don't get involved in the rites for venerating the realized one's corpse. You must strive and practice for your own goal. Meditate, diligent, keen, and resolute for your own goal. Again, this is this is another um, uh, another area where it's a bit ambiguous about where it, whether it's talking to Ananda specifically, remembering that he was not yet fully enlightened, or whether it's a more general recommendation. Of course, again, this, this recommendation has not really been followed in the community, or certainly not today. Uh, and normally, uh, when there are funerals, especially of great monks, then the Sangha does get involved in organizing the funerals. Uh, there are astute aristocrats, Brahmins, and householders who are devoted to the realized one. They all perform the rites for venerating the realized one's corpse. So these days, it's pretty common in. Um, uh, Theravadan countries and uh, and elsewhere in Buddhism as well, that monastics will be uh, called upon to perform funeral rites and to for perform chanting and various ceremonies and so on for funerals. In fact, it's become become so common that it is uh, it's something that really has to be uh, dealt with, uh, especially in any practice tradition, because otherwise you're just spending all day. <laughs> going to one funeral after the next, you know, and people will be asking like the monks to come and, you know, chant all night, every night for a week or something like that. And so it's not uh, a small obligation. But you can see here from the Buddha's attitude again, uh, you know, not not a kind of orientalist imposition on it, but the Buddha's quite clearly saying that the monks shouldn't be so much involved in funeral ceremonies, but more involved with 
uh, doing the practice and their meditation. So again, it's not something that we, you know, I think we should be taking 100%, but I think it needs to be, um, uh, there needs to be some some sort of balance and moderation there. Um, yeah, I just I just hear one story about funeral rites. Like, how did the how 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 was how was how was that? How did that come into the Buddhist tradition? How did it turn out that that you know the Buddhist monks and nuns do spend a lot of their time doing funerals? It's a difficult uh, question to ask answer, and uh, it would be kind of a long uh, study to see exactly that. But one data point in that is a story, a background story in one of the Jatakas, where uh, Venerable Udayan, who was large, large, uh, who was widely regarded as being the most stupid monk in the Sangha. Uh, was invited for a funeral, and uh, when they came back from the funeral, the Buddha said to the monks, um, "How was it? How was the how was the funeral?" And uh, everyone said, oh, "It was terrible." And uh, the Buddha said, "Why is it?" And they said, "Well, when it came to time to recite the verses of sorrow, you know, we're supposed to recite that all things are impermanent and so on." And instead, he he recited the verses of auspicious blessings, saying, "Oh, happy day! Oh, wonderful day! If only every day could be like today." <laughs> so poor old Udayan didn't get the chanting right for the funerals. Anyway, moving on, moving on. <clears throat> All right, so um, uh, so the Buddha gives the instructions for the uh, pre- preparing of the uh, the corpse. They wrap a wheel-turning monarch's corpse with unworn cloth, then with uncarded cotton, then with unworn, again with unworn cloth. In this way, they wrap the corpse with 500 double layers. Uh, it's a lot. And then they place it in an iron case filled with oil and close it up with another case. Having built a funeral pyre out of all kinds of fragrant substances, they cremate the corpse. Uh, and so there's, there's mentions of this kind of iron case uh, and at one or two other places in the suttas as well. Uh, and it seems to be that was the uh, method of cremating uh, a great king or somebody of royal lineage and also for the Buddha and so on. Um, uh, and then they make a monument uh, at the crossroads. So the Buddha is saying that his funeral should be done the same way as the wheel-turning monarch, a monument being a stupa, of course. And then when somebody lifts up garlands or fragrance or powder or inspires confidence in their heart, that will be for their lasting welfare and happiness. The Buddha goes on to say that the four people who are deserving of a stupa are the Buddha, an independent Buddha, a Pacheka Buddha, and a Buddha's disciple and a wheel-turning monarch. So these four are worthy of a stupa. Okay, so next section, Ananda's incredible qualities. One of the favourite passages here about Ananda. Ananda entered a dwelling and stood there leaning against the door jamb and crying. Oh, I'm still only a trainee with work left to do, and my teacher is about to become fully extinguished, he who is so kind to me. Uh, And so sad. And I think, you know, he's a very relatable figure here, Paul Ananda. Um, just to note that the dwelling here is Vihara. Uh, I mean, remembering they were just in a forest grove. Uh, the commentary says this was a pavilion which was set up for the funeral. Um, and 
But one of the details about this, which is really interesting, is that uh, the Ananda, if, if, a little earlier in the sutta, um, from last week's readings, we noted that the Buddha, uh, when he said he was going to Kusinara, pointed to uh, the, his past life as King Mahasudasana and saying that this used to be a great city. Now, in that sutta, the Mahasudasana Sutta is an ex-sutta in the Diginikaya, DN17, and there, when uh, the queen approaches the king, uh, he's intent on going on retreat and meditating, uh, and so because she misses him so much, then she also uh, is leaning against the door jam and crying in basically in the same way that Ananda is here. And it's quite deliberate. Like, if you look at the narrative structure of it, the 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 sutra is quite a, quite quite softly but quite carefully framing it so that Ananda is in the place of the queen in this particular instance, which I think is an interesting uh, narrative device there. Anyway, uh, poor old Ananda. So what does the Buddha do to this? The Buddha addressed a certain monk. Please, monk, in my name, tell Ananda that the teacher summons him. So he was summoned, went to the Buddha, and the Buddha said, Enough, Ananda, do not grieve, do not lament. Did I not prepare you for this when I explained that we must be parted and separated from all we hold dear and beloved? How could it possibly be so that what is born, created, conditioned, and liable to wear out should not wear out even the realized one's body? For a long time. So so, so get notice, and notice the Buddha's response here. First of all, it's like Ananda, okay, enough. That's it. It's impermanent. So he's kind of, you know, checking him. But then once he's, he doesn't just leave it with that, he then gives him emotional support for a long time, Ananda. You've treated the realized one with deeds of body, speech, and mind that are loving, beneficial, pleasant, undivided, and limitless. You've done good deeds, Ananda. Katapunyosi tuang, Ananda. Devote yourself to meditation. yunja. And you'll soon be free of defilements. And again, the emphasis on meditation is very clear here. You've done good deeds, Ananda. So the Buddha is, on the one hand, restraining and checking Ananda's behavior, but also then giving him that kindness and those nice words and that words of encouragement. The Buddhas of the past or the future have attendants who are no better than Ananda is for me. Ananda is astute. He is intelligent. He knows the time for monks, nuns, laymen, laywomen, kings, ministers, monastics of other religions and their disciples to visit the realized one. Um, and, of course, we see uh, many examples of that uh, wisdom and discernment through the suttas. Now, uh, then the Buddha then goes on. The next bit is also, I think, very interesting and very precise. The Buddha says there are these four uh, incredible and amazing things about Ananda. You see, this is very personally and specifically phrased because Ananda is the one who's always talking about the incredible and amazing things about the Buddha. And in uh, the uh, uh, Majjhima 123, Acharya Bhutta Sutta and various other places, we see it's Ananda who's saying, oh, this is wonderful, this incredible thing about the Buddha. And he was always amazed by the Buddha's great qualities like this and found it so inspiring. And here now the Buddha is turning that around 
and saying, actually, Ananda, you also have these incredible and amazing things. So this, to me, is such a moving and personal uh, teaching method that the Buddha is using here. You know, if you didn't know about their relationship and the other passages like that, you would, you know, you probably wouldn't quite notice that. But when you see that, you realize that the Buddha is actually framing this very, very specifically. If an assembly of monks goes to see Ananda, they're uplifted by hearing him, uplifted when, by seeing him, and uplifted by hearing him speak. And when he's forced silent, they've never had enough. And the same with an assembly of nuns or laymen or laywomen. They've never had enough of listening to him. These are the four incredible and amazing things about Ananda. Uh, then the Buddha goes on to compare it to four incredible and amazing things about a wheel-turning monarch. And similarly, four, four assemblies of aristocrats, Brahmins, householders and ascetics uh, can't get enough of seeing them and listening to them in the same way. Sorry, I, I, my mistake, I... I Misunderstood. I, I got the sequence wrong. That is the um, Gati Manto. That's where Ananda would never get that because he had the understood the sequence correctly. Mahasudasana is just coming up. It wasn't last week. It's this week. Uh, or it's right now. So after that, then the Buddha talks about uh, Mahasudasana. Ananda said to the Buddha, please don't become fully extinguished in this little hamlet, this jungle hamlet, this branch hamlet. There are other great cities such as Champa, Rajagaha, Savati, Saketa, Kosambi, and Varanasi. Let the Buddha become fully extinguished there. There are many well-to-do aristocrats, Brahmins, and householders there who are devoted to the Buddha. They will perform the rites of venerating the realized one's corpse. So these uh, cities uh, encompass the main areas where the Buddha uh, visited uh, during his lifetime, and most of them are probably fairly familiar to people. Varanasi, of course, is Benares. Kosambi is, still has the same name today. Uh, Saketa is just south of Savati, uh, which is in, uh, I think it's in Uttar Pradesh. Uh, Rajagaha in, um, uh, in, what was then, Magadha, just south of the Ganges at Patna. Uh, and Champa to the east towards, uh, towards uh, Bengal uh, and the capital of Anga. Um, so the Buddha says, don't say that, Ananda, and goes on to say, once upon a time there was a king named Mahasudasana who was a wheel-turning monarch, a just and principled king. His dominion extended to all four sides. He achieved stability in the country, and he possessed the seven treasures. His capital was this Kusinara, which at the time was named Kusavati. It stretched for 12 leagues from east to west and seven leagues from north to south. The royal capital of Kusavati was successful, prosperous, populous, full of people with plenty of food. It was just like Alakamanda, the royal capital of the gods, which is successful, prosperous, populous, and full of spirits with plenty of food. Kusavati was never free of ten sounds by night or day. The sounds of elephants, horses, chariots, drums, clay drums, arched harps, singing, horns, gongs, and handbells, and the cry, eat, drink, be merry, as the tenth. Uh, so the Buddha's uh, trying to depict this as a, uh, a such a prosperous and and uh, beautiful uh, city, but I can't help getting the feeling that he probably would have hated it there with all of the noise going on. Uh, but anyway, um, one little detail that I have been sort of coming across in my research uh, on these texts again and again, which I just sort of mentioned for your your interest, is why is the prefix kusi here? 
we have various kind of kusis. You have kusinara, kusavati. Uh, perhaps kosambi might be included in that. Perhaps kosala also might be included in that. And there are various other cases where you have these kinds of similar names. I believe that all of these come from the same root, which is kusa, which is the name of kind of grass. Uh, why were all of these cities named by a kind of grass? Because kusa grass was one of the essential ingredients in Vedic rituals, specifically in the Vedic rituals of uh, uh, coronation. So in those days, the Brahmins, um, one of the primary ways they established their influence was by um, convincing everybody, essentially, that they needed to have Brahmin priests, they call it Purohita, to perform the uh, uh, investiture or the coronation of the kings and to to legitimize uh, the power of their realm. Uh, and I believe that this uh, kusa or kusi uh, derives from that, that it's essentially a sign that these are Brahmanized uh, kingdoms or Brahmanized realms uh, whose royal family was established through this means. <clears throat> Other places as well, you find it like the Kusa Jataka and so on. I won't go into the whole argument about that, but just to let you know, that's, I think, where those names come from. Uh, and undergo into Kusinara and inform the Malas, this very day of our in the last watch of the night, the realized one will become fully extinguished. And this is another good example of exactly the thing that I was talking about. Uh, the Malas is the tribal name, Wasetas is the name of the Purohita of the Malas clan. So when the Malas are uh, crowned as king with a Purohita as the priest who's officiating the ceremony, uh, they adopt the Brahmanical lineage of the priest, hence the name Vasetta, which is a Brahmanical lineage name for the Katya clan, the Malas, also the same as the Gotama uh, for the Sakyans. Um, so, come forth, Vasettas, come forth, don't regret it later, thinking the realized one became fully extinguished in our own village district, but we didn't get a chance to see him in his final hour. Okay, so uh, the Malas of Kusinara were sitting together at the meeting hall on some business. Kenachideva Karniena. And um, <clears throat> so it seems they're like similar to the to the Lichavis in, of the, the Vajian Federation, that they uh, were having frequent meetings, as the Buddha recommended. Ananda uh, recommends, asks them to come and see the Buddha, and so they come, many of them stricken, stricken by grief. I'm going to summarize this next passage as I go on. Uh, then, then there was a wanderer, Subhadda, residing near Kusinara, um, and... Uh, so he was a wanderer paribhajika in the Brahmanical tradition. Uh, he refers to his Brahman teachers of the past here. Uh, and he wants to ask a Buddha a question because he knows the Buddha is going to die soon. Uh, so he goes to see the Buddha. Uh, Ananda says, don't trouble him because he's not well. So the Nanda is now probably being a bit overprotective after his little faux pas with the, the getting the glass of the drink of water. And now he uh, um, wants to make sure the Buddha gets his rest. But then the Buddha says, okay, it's all right, let him come. Uh, and the question of Subhadda. Master Gautama, 
There are those ascetics and Brahmins who lead an order and a community and teach a community. They're well-known and famous religious founders deemed holy by many, by many people, namely Purana Kasapa, the bamboo-staffed ascetic Gosala, Ajita of the Hair Blanket, Pakuda Gachayana, Sanjaya Belakiputta, and the Jain ascetic of the Nyatika clan. According to their own claims, did all of them have direct knowledge or none of them or only some? So these are the famous uh, six ascetics, the six leading summoners of the time of the Buddha, uh, who we meet in uh, the famously in Diga Nikaya number two, the Samanyapala Sutta, where their uh, teachings are described in some detail uh, and referred to a number of other places in the suttas as well. Now, of these six, uh, the only one who's fairly well known is the one who Pali texts call Niganta Nataputta, uh, and who is the Jain leader Mahavira Vardhamana. And um, the Pali translators, I think, have so far not quite noticed that, uh, and I think Pali tradition has has not quite noticed the uh, actual meaning of what's going on with the name Niganta Nataputta. It's not a personal name at all. Niganta is simply a word that is used for the Jain ascetics, just as bhikkhu is used for uh, Buddhist uh, mendicants. And Nataputta is a, uh, a variant spelling of the Nyatika Putta, that is to say a member of the Nyatika clan. And we have met the Nyatikas earlier as the Buddha went to their hometown of Nyatika. Uh, and so Niganta Nataputta isn't a personal name, but it's a reference to the Jain ascetic of the, of the Nyatika clan. In exactly the same way as others might refer to the Buddha, for example, as Samana Gotama, uh, meaning the ascetic of the Gotama clan, uh, and so on. <clears throat> um, so in the uh, Samanya Palasutta, um, so, apart, so apart from Mahavira, uh, the others are fairly obscure. Um, Makali Gosala, the, the uh, bamboo-staffed ascetic Gosala, uh, was the founder of the Adivikas. We know something about him. And some of the others we really know very little about at all, apart from what we find in the Buddhist texts. Now, according to their own claims, did all of them have direct knowledge or none of them or some of them? Uh, now, in the suttas, um, uh, uh, Mahavira uh, and Purana did claim to have that kind of direct knowledge, uh, whereas others, uh, uh, such as uh, Ajitakesa Kambala, uh, denied that direct knowledge was was. Oops, that's right. That's a uh, typo in my uh, note there. Uh, denied that such knowledge was possible. Not denied that it was impossible, denied that it was possible. Um, so, of course, this is still a question that comes up a lot, right? People still want to know, you know, what, was this person enlightened? Was that person enlightened? And, you know, is my teacher as enlightened as your teacher? My teacher must be more enlightened than your teacher because it says so on his Facebook page. Uh, and my teacher... Uh, you know, says he's an arahant, so therefore he must be an arahant and all of these kinds of things. So these are still uh, things which people kind of debate in the Buddhist tradition. 
uh, and not only about Buddhist teachers, but also about non-Buddhist teachers. And people will look at, uh, you know, great uh, sages like Maharishi in, in India or uh, Meister Eichhardt in the uh, German tradition and various other sages and people and say, well, look, they sound like they're uh, enlightened. Maybe, maybe these people were enlightened as well. So, of course, um, not easy, right? Not easy to say uh, what the state of a person is. And the Buddha, generally speaking, was not, um, how do I put this, uh, not uh, a fan of people who were not enlightened themselves uh, speculating about the enlightenment of others. Enough, Subhadda, let that be, I shall teach you the Dhamma. Subhadda, in whatever teaching and training the Noble Eightfold Path is not found, there is no ascetic found, no second ascetic, no third ascetic, and no fourth ascetic. These, of course, being the four uh, stages of realization, stream entry, once return, non-return, and arahant. In whatever teaching and training the Noble Eightfold Path is found, there is an ascetic found, a second ascetic, a third ascetic, and a fourth ascetic. In this teaching and training, the Noble Eightfold Path is found. Only here is there an ascetic, here a second ascetic, here a third ascetic, and here a fourth ascetic. Other sects are empty of ascetics. Were these mendicants to practice well, the world would not be empty of perfected ones, of arahants. So here, notice again, the Buddha is always very finely judging what he says and what he doesn't say. He, what, he, what, he, what he does say is that to become enlightened and realize any of these stages, you have to practice the Noble Eightfold Path. Fine. That's exactly what he's been teaching his whole life. Then he also says, well, you can't find that teaching of the Noble Eightfold Path anywhere outside of Buddhism. And as far as I'm aware, that's demonstrably true. And you can certainly find aspects of the Noble Eightfold Path in other teachings that were around at the time. And the Buddha was, you know, very happy to acknowledge that. But there were none, not in the Jains, not in the Brahmins, and not apparently anywhere else where you would find the full Eightfold Path as taught by the Buddha. What the Buddha does not say, however, is that it's impossible for there to be someone outside of Buddhism that will um, uh, practice and realize enlightenment because, of course, Maybe, such, maybe times will change. Maybe, maybe people will adopt the Eightfold Path. Yeah? We can look at, just to pick up one example, uh, the Yoga Sutra, which uh, was written by Patanjali probably two or three hundred years after the Buddha, maybe longer than that, I think the latest estimates are, uh, and clearly influenced by Buddhism, like it adopts a lot of Buddhist terminology and so on. Uh, and, you know, were you to ask, well, if someone practicing according to the Yoga Sutra, uh, I mean, can you find all of the factors of the Noble Eightfold Path in there? Oh, look, I don't know. Arguably, I mean, it's, there's certainly a lot of it there. Uh, and would this same statement apply in that case? Again, I mean, I think that there's a discussion to be had about that. But I think the main point is that uh, the Buddha is not sort of denying the possibility. It's not that the point is not that you get enlightened because you declare your faith in the Buddha, but you get enlightened by practicing the Noble Eightfold Path. This is the main point here. So the Buddha uh, then says, I was 29 years of age, Subhadda, when I went forth to discover what is skillful. Uh, and I think this is the only place in the suttas where the Buddha actually identifies that he was 29 when he went forth. 
Uh, now it's only over 50 years since I went forth the teacher of the references for the systematic teaching outside of here there is no ascetic. Now these verses are I think certainly corrupt uh, and, and almost uh, incomprehensible as they stand. Um, the, the first four lines are fine and then it suddenly uh, implements here Nyaya Sadhama Sapadesavati Itobahidha Samanopinati um, but in this case, the Sanskrit text is very helpful uh, because in the Sanskrit, if you translate what the Sanskrit says, it, that last verse would be ethics, immersion, conduct and knowledge and unification of mind have been developed by me, the teacher of the references of, for the noble teaching. Uh, and so that then makes perfect sense. So the Buddha is saying that uh, these practices, which essentially cover the same ground as the Noble Eightfold Path, uh, have been developed by me. And then he's teaching the references of the Noble Teaching, i.e. the four Mahapadesa. I think this is a callback to the this, the Mahapadesa, which he has taught earlier. So he's, he's not only taught these things, but then he's given us a guideline for understanding them as well. Uh, were these mendicants to practice well, the world would not be empty of perfected ones. And I think in this statement, Imecha Subhadda Bhikkhu, he's actually pointing to the mendicants, uh, the bhikkhus and bhikkhunis who are present at the time. Um, <clears throat> and so uh, Subhadda uh, uh, is very inspired, wants to go forth. The Buddha says, uh, as you standard, he says he put him on probation, but he says that's fine. So he ended up giving him the going forth and he became ultimately an enlightened uh, disciple as the last disciple of the Buddha. Okay, <clears throat> now we've finally come up to the Buddha's last words. Uh, so let us uh, see uh, what the Buddha has to say here on this very solemn occasion. The Buddha addressed Venerable Ananda. Now, Ananda, some of you might think the teacher's dispensation has passed now. We have no teacher. But you should not see it like this. The teaching and training that I've taught and pointed out for you shall be my teacher after my passing. Okay? So here the Buddha is making his major statement, right? Beginning with making this major uh, uh, saying, this is how the this is how the sasana continues, uh, and this is how this is how it proceeds, uh, in line with uh, everything that we've seen uh, previously throughout the Sutta. Then uh, a much, uh, some more minor details, but interesting that these are introduced here. After my passing, mendicants ought not address each other as reverend, as avuso, as they do today. A more senior mendicant ought to address a more junior mendicant by name or clan or by saying reverend. A more junior mendicant ought to address a more senior mendicant using sir or venerable. Um, so uh, the word avuso, often translated as friend, uh, but in fact, avuso is from the root ayu, meaning elder, uh, and it is a respectful term, although not as respectful as ayasma, as you can see here. So I use reverend for avuso and venerable for ayasma. Uh, and so these kind of establishing terms of address uh, by which the monks are different uh, levels of seniority should uh, refer to each other. And I think this is sort of by way of establishing uh, that respect for seniors and that respect for elders, uh, which the Buddha had already spoken about uh, earlier. And notice that, again, this is this is about 
um, decorum and respect. It's not about command. Uh, the Buddha isn't saying junior monks, you have to do everything the senior monks tell you to do. He's not saying senior monks, I bless you with the power and authority to get the juniors to just do whatever you want. No, no, no. He's just saying let's treat, let's have that respect for seniority and that respect for the elders in the communion. Uh, also notice that these things are very simple. Uh, the junior mendicant ought to address a more senior, senior using sir, that's Bhante, and Bhante, of course, is what everyone would refer to the Buddha with. And so the, the terms of address at this time are pretty simple, uh, not really very kind of fancy or very exalted. Uh, I had I discussed this once with a uh, Sri Lankan monk. We were talking about tra translations of suttas into Sri Lankan. And we discussed the point that in, in modern Sri Lankan translations that they use very fancy uh, terms to talk about the Buddha. Same thing true in Thai as well. Uh, so, you know, you, when, when the, the suttas say Bhagavar in Thai, you'll say, pra pumi pra pak jau, uh, which I'm not even going to sort of try to sort of translate that literally, but it basically uh, sort of takes the word and then wraps it in layer after layer of exaltedness. And uh, in the suttas, and it's quite simple. And uh, so in, anyway, when I was talking with this uh, Sri Lankan monk and I, we discussed this point, he said, yeah, you're right, in the suttas it's quite simple, but in modern Sinhala we can't do that. We have to make it super fancy. Uh, so uh, I know that uh, Diriyupa is uh, wanting to do translations of the suttas, so this is something that she'll have to figure out uh, for herself uh, of exactly how fancy we're going to make the words there. Um, <clears throat> anyway... Uh, if he wishes, after my passing, the, Buddha, the Sangha may abolish the lesser and minor training rules. Now, we've already seen from the beginning how this narrative arc of the rules uh, and the keeping or getting rid of the rules is shaping this whole thing. It begins with the, the vajis, you know, don't let go of your old rules, and then the Sangha also shouldn't let go of your own rules. And then now uh, the Buddha is saying, oh, you can let go of the rules if you like. Oh, these lesser and minor ones, don't worry about them. Uh, famously, Ananda didn't ask him what the lesser and minor training rules were. Now, actually, in the Pali canon, the lesser uh, uh, training rules, the Kudika rules, are consistently referred to as uh, the Pachitya rules. Uh, which would make the Patidesaniya rules the minor ones. Uh, but regardless, the Sangha ultimately decided not to abolish any rules. Why would the Buddha do this? I think the point of it is that it shows that the reason that we keep the rules is not because we were told to keep them. The reason that we keep the rules is because we chose to keep them. And it's a way of empowering the Sangha. If you want to keep them, you keep them. If not, don't. But it's something which is done by the Sangha and not by individual monks or individual nuns. Uh, now, after my passing, give the divine punishment, Brahmadanda, to the mendicant Channa. But what is the divine punishment? Channa may say as he likes, but mendicants should not correct, advise, or instruct him. Uh, again, the resolution of that. Uh, is taught in the uh, uh, the end of the uh, narrative of the first council, uh, but basically Channa had been um, kind of systematically uh, obnoxious, and so um, 
Yes. I mean, just trying to imagine how it'd be feel to be poor old Chandra and have the Buddha, one of the last things the Buddha ever says in his life. Anyway. Um, okay. And then the next passage, also very famous. So the Buddha sort of dealt with a couple of minor procedural uh, matters and now returns to the major principles. If there's a single one has doubt or uncertainty concerning the Buddha, the teaching, the Sangha, the path or the practice, ask. Don't regret it later, thinking we were in the teacher's presence and we weren't able to ask the Buddha a question. When this was said, the mendicants kept silent. And for a second and a third time, the Buddha asked, and for a third time, they stayed silent. And the Buddha said to the mendicants, mendicants, please, do, perhaps you don't ask out of respect for the teacher. So let a friend tell a friend. And when this was said, the mendicants kept silent. And Venerable Ananda said to the Buddha, it's incredible, sir, it's amazing. I'm quite confident that there's not even a single mendicant in this Sangha who has doubt or uncertainty regarding the Buddha, the teaching, the Sangha, the path or the practice. And the Buddha said, Ananda, you speak from faith, but the realized one knows that there's not even a single mendicant in the Sangha who has doubt or uncertainty regarding the Buddha, the teaching, the Sangha, the path or the practice. Even the last of these 500 mendicants is a stream enterer, not liable to be reborn in the underworld and bound for awakening. Then the Buddha said to the mendicants, Come now, mendicants, I say to you all, conditions fall apart, persist with diligence. Vayadhamma sankara apamadena sampadeta. These were the realized one's last words. I'm going to finish there and come back. And I'd like to, I think we've got about 15 minutes left and maybe we'll get a chance. Sorry to leave you on a cliffhanger there, but um, <laughs> we can come back next week to find out what happens. Uh, so I'd like to uh, go check in the chat and see if anyone has any questions. Uh, or you can uh, ask online if you like. Um, uh, let's. Uh, so, to you, pa, uh comments. Uh, I feel for him, presumably, an under a Dhamma friend, and I were crying buckets when we thought of never ever seeing a teacher again in our next lives. Well. Well, you know what I have to say for that, dear Yupa. It's impermanent. We can, how can it be that we should not be separated from those that are dear beloved? It cannot happen. It is not possible. So, yeah. Anyway, moving on. Okay, so Wayne asks a question about the language usage. Uh, what's the difference between the uh, fully enlightened one, a fully awakened one, a realized one? Are they interchangeable? Oh, well, my goodness. Well, we could do a whole session on epithets of the Buddha, but very briefly. So the Buddha, word Buddha means awakened, sometimes also enlightened, but more literal rendering is actually awakened. Um, so either awakened or enlightened sometimes is translated either way. So then, then you have uh, you have the phrase that sama sambuddha, 
which is kind of an intensified form of a buddha so often like the fully awakened one or something like that that basically has the same meaning and you can sort of draw out the implications if you like but the basically they're both words way of referring to the buddha uh, the realized one uh, is my translation of the word tathagata uh, and tathagata literally means like the one who has become such and it's usually used in a context that emphasizes the integrity and truthfulness of the buddha uh, so as he says so he does as he does so he says uh, and so the tathagata is one who uh, speaks and acts with integrity. Uh, and so it's that as this, I translate it as a realized one. Um, uh, other, other common epithets of the Buddha is the Bhagava, which um, uh, is kind of a, a very idiomatic Indian term, but essentially usually translated as the blessed one or gracious one or exalted one or something like that. Uh, Sugata is another one. So there's many other uh, terms that are used to describe the Buddha. Uh, and um, yeah, there, so the, the the Indic languages are very rich in these kind of epithets. Um, yeah. All right. So uh, uh, Gita says thanks for sharing this sutta with everyone. Well, my pleasure, Gita. My absolute pleasure. Uh, now, there's there's no more questions there in the chat. So I don't know if anybody has any questions at this point. How are we going? Okay, and no, I've got a couple more appearing there. Okay, very good. So Wei Chang um, says, it's strange that the Buddha instructed the monks to stop addressing each other using Avaso, but not while he was alive. Why didn't he set that rule when he was alive? I mean, it's a bit hard to say because, you know, it's just uh, speculation because the text doesn't really say why. But I presume, presume that it's because while the Buddha was alive, there was that focus in the Sangha that people would look to him for leadership. And then there's a, perhaps like a bit of a fear that after he, he's gone, things are kind of going to devolve into chaos. And so the Buddha sort of introduced this as a method that has a very light touch Right. So again, sort of notice what he's doing. He's not saying, look, we we have to set up a whole new system, right? He's not saying we have to have uh, councils and and we have to do this, and we have to do that, and all of these kinds of things. It's a very light touch. He's just saying, make sure that you, when you talk to your elders, that you talk to them respectfully. And I think that that is really what he's doing there. And there are some there are some sort of stories that revolve around that later. Like there's a very kind of sad story about poor Ananda about 20, 30 years after the Buddha died and he's walking, going for a walk through the monastery and he hears a young monk reciting a verse in Pali and he's just got all of the words wrong and it's reciting this nonsensical verse in Pali. And Ananda says, oh, excuse me, Venerable, you know, just so you know, that it's supposed to go like this. And he recites the verse. And the young monk just looks at him and thinks, what does this old fool know? Oh, he's doddering old, <laughs> senile guy. So I think this is really why that's what introduced. Yeah. All right, very good. Kaz says, how's it going, Kaz? Um, it's very important to just listen to the important message from the Buddha, which is devote to meditation, that the Noble Eightfold Path leads to Nibbana and to practice diligently. Uh, exactly. And so I think that, like, one of the things which is really, um, how do I put this? Um, like, it's really kind of in, in inspiring about this narrative is that, you know, it's a very empowering narrative. 
You know, the Buddha had full confidence in people to keep on going and practicing. And he's constantly bringing that back to them, not making it all about him. And so this is also why, you know, I think to sort of moderate that kind of cult of personality and guru worship and everything like that, actually it has to come down to, to us and to our practice. And so, yes, the Buddha is inspiring and is in, as an example, but ultimately we're the ones. Okay, uh, so Peter says, or Pete says, Pete Hume says, it's been very helpful to me to hear your pronunciation of so many terms that are commonly mispronounced. Well, thank you, Pete. I appreciate that. I, I put a, quite a lot of effort into learning how to pronounce Pali correctly, and I'm happy that people notice. Um, do, you, do you have a shortcut of common terms that practitioners often mispronounce? Uh, not really. Uh, the way that people mispronounce things uh, often um, uh, uh, is quite culturally determined, depending on how people, you know, are used to hearing it in their own language. Um, so, uh, no, but I did put a bit of a guide to Pali in the, um, uh, I think, in the introductory essay. I'll, I'll just, I think I can share that with you now, actually. I can give you a bit of my guide to pronouncing Pali if you want to have a look at it. Um, but there are some really good ones on YouTube now as well, actually, if you want to learn more about uh, uh, how to how to do it. Um, yeah. Okay, so I'm going to put this in the uh, chat. And so that's uh, my short guide to pronouncing Pani. <clears throat> um, no, I don't have necessarily a list of words, but I'll tell you what, though, uh, as several people on this chat can attest, if I do find you mispronouncing things, I will call you out on it. <laughs> um, all right. So Mao asks, does persist with diligence, apamadena uh, sampadeta, mean something specific? Suppose it means practicing the path and reaching enlightenment. Uh, exactly. And so in those two phrases, vayadhamma sankara apamadena sampadeta, four words uh, encapsulating the whole of the Four Noble Truths, encapsulating the whole of the Buddha's teachings, also encapsulating the theme of this Mahaparinibbana Sutta, on the one hand, the inevitability of everything passing, right? that sad, calamitous inevitability. But at the same time, do something about it. You're not the victim of old age and death, you know. We are agents. We get to choose our lives. And the whole point of the Buddha's teaching is that there is something meaningful that you can do. Elsewhere in the suttas, the Buddha said, even if you breathe in and then you think, oh, I might breathe, I might die before I breathe out but there is much that you can do in that interval between breathing in and breathing out. There is much that you can do. And if you do that with mindfulness, then that is what makes your life well lived and lived in accordance with Dhamma. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Dhiri Upa says, I can't even pronounce my own name properly, Pali-wise. Dhira Yupa. Dhira Yupa. <laughs> Thai pronunciation, they usually say Tira Yupa. Okay. Uh, the link, 
Sorry, I, I sent the link. Uh, I sent the link to Gita as a direct message instead of sending to everyone. My um, my mistake. Let me just do it again. There you go. I sent it to everyone now. Okay. Uh, <laughs> very good. So, uh, just by the way, if you do want a Pali name, uh, you can let me know, and I'll choose a fun one for you. Because most of the time when people have Pali names, they choose really boring ones. And so I'm, I'm kind of on a mission to have people have more fun Pali names. So, okay, uh, good. Excellent. Any more questions before we wrap up for today? <laughs> so Wayne says he's up for a party name. If you want, uh, if you're serious about it, then may I suggest contact uh, Rob and then send me an email or you can contact me on our sort of central forum and ask. But I'm going to want to know some biographical details first because I want to make sure that it's personal and specific for you. I'm not just going to give you any old random name, all right? <clears throat> Uh, so Jeff uh, asks, uh, he'd heard that in the ancient kingdom of Kusinagara, the Buddha describes to Ananda, so that's in the, um, the Mahasudasana uh, reference that we saw in the Mahaparindibbana Sutta, and then in more detail in Diga 19, uh, that the Buddha describes to Ananda, Buddha had seen a wheel-turning monarch there in a previous life. That's correct. The Buddha uh, had not just seen one, but he had been a wheel uh, seen. Oh, sorry, yes, what you said. Yes, he had been a wheel-turning monarch in a previous life. Uh, and so that is one of the, I mean, it's an interesting sutta from a kind of uh, sort of Buddha-logical point of view uh, because it talks about uh, this kind of idealised, city and this idealized realm that the Buddha was in and it's like it, it, it kind of it amplifies this narrative you know that that the Buddha uh, had everything before he went forth you know so um, we know the Buddha came from a noble background and so on and he had to renounce a lot to go forth and in the Mahasudasana Sutta then that's kind of amplified to these kind of cities made of gold and crystal and all of these kinds of things and so uh, he still went forth. But one of the things that's interesting about that sutta, uh, and which is, uh, is it that sutta specific? I should not misrepresent this because that would be bad. Let me just double check. Um, might be somewhere else now that I think about it. Right. Yeah, so at the end of that, so at the end of the Mahasadasana, the Buddha identifies himself with Mahasadasana, uh, making it one of the few uh, Jataka stories found in the early texts. Uh, so there's three such Jataka stories in the Diga Nikaya, uh, and about, I think, four or five elsewhere in the suttas. Uh, and um, so these were the obviously the kind of the template uh, on which the Jataka collection was formed. Uh, 
Um, and so, yes, so the Buddha uh, then uses that as that uh, to emphasize that teaching of uh, impermanence. Uh, and as the king in that time, he had uh, gone forth. Well, not gone forth, but he had re uh, got retreated to his palace uh, and just spent the rest of his life in meditation, uh, developing a meditation on karuna, on a karuna jhana. Uh, and so, uh, uh, and getting then reborn in a Brahma realm. Um, so, yeah, that's the teaching. That's the Mahasudasana uh, Sutta. But really, it's really it's a it's a it's a few paragraphs in the in the Mahaparinibbana Sutta, which in the Pali were blown up to be a complete Sutta, but which you find in the Sanskrit is just there in a sort of much more sort of smaller form within the Mahaparinibbana Sutta. So uh, I mentioned at the beginning that the Mahaparinibbana is part of a much wider cycle of a number of different texts, which are sometimes organised in different ways. Uh, so, for example, in some cases, the accounts of these, the first council are tacked on directly to the end of the Mahaparinibbana Sutta, whereas in the Pali they're separated out, one in the suttas and one in the vinaya. And so you find these differences in the way things were organised, uh, 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 but, the, but the content itself, um, you know, there was a kind of a mass of shared content which is organised in these different ways uh, in the different schools. All right, I think we should probably uh, finish up there.